we get started. Good to have you all here. Thank you for being on time. As always, we're going to open up with a word of prayer. Then we're going to explain a little bit uh, how we're going to format tonight. And then, as always, we're just going to trust that the Lord is going to speak to us and give clarity to us as we dive in and study His word together. So please join me with the word of opening prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for the incredible grace that you give us each day. We thank you so much, Lord, just for the amazing kindness that you show us as well. And thank you, Father, that you are a God who is constantly revealing yourself to us. You are speaking to us through your word. You put yourself on display through creation, through the counsel of other believers, through your spirit who lives in us. Father, you are a God that wants us to know you, wants us to understand you, and you want us, Lord God, to grow in our knowledge of you. And so, Father God, tonight we pray that as this time begins, that you would be present through your Holy Spirit. We invite you to send your Holy Spirit upon us. We pray that you would fill each one of us and that you would fill this room with your presence. Jesus, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, particularly as we look to your word, as we look at a lot of different passages and try to pull themes together. Jesus, we just pray that you would be our teacher. We pray that you would help us to rightly understand what you have recorded for us in your word. We realize, Lord, that we are completely incapable of doing anything apart from you. But Jesus, as you promise us that if we abide in you, we will bear much fruit. And some of that fruit, Lord, is better knowing you, better understanding your word, and then living, living differently in light of what you show us. So again, Father, we thank you for the theme of eschatology even though that's not a word that you use in scripture, it certainly is a theme that runs throughout scripture. You challenging us to look to the future, to look to you and to look to the good things that you have done and to look to the good things that you will do. And so we pray now, Lord, that as we spend this time together, you would put in each of us just a real excitement and a real joy just for the incredible things that you have done and the incredible things that are coming. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, hopefully as you came in on the table back there, you saw that there are four sheets. Two of the sheets are what we handed out two weeks ago. Uh, eschatology Introduction and Eschatology Introduction Part 2. So if you were here two weeks ago, you may have those, but if not, there's a copy of those in the back. And then two new sheets, uh, the intermediate state and the intermediate state part two. So what we're going to do tonight is we're gonna quickly review uh, some of what we looked at two weeks ago. Remember, we basically got through that first sheet, eschatology introduction. And we are going to then continue with eschatology introduction part two. And I, I believe have plenty of time to work our way through that entire sheet. And then hopefully uh, be able to get into some of the ideas of the intermediate state. 
But again, what I would like to do is just review a couple of the key ideas that we talked about two weeks ago. So remember we said that the word eschatology comes from two Greek words and it basically means the doctrine of the final things or the doctrine of the last things. And so we said that God is a God that's constantly challenging us as his people. As we look to him, we are to be looking to the future. We are to be looking forward. There's always a hope and expectation that he puts in front of us. So we spent a bit of time looking at some Old Testament passages. And what we saw is that the Old Testament is constantly looking forward. Beginning all the way in Genesis chapter 3, the Old Testament is forward looking. And we looked in particular at some of the prophets. We looked at Obadiah. We looked at Joel. Um, we looked at a couple others as well. And we saw some key phrases that kind of put our antenna up and make us attentive to what comes next as something that is forward looking. So we looked at the concept of the day of the Lord or other phrases like at that time in those days, in the last days, or in the latter days. These are some of the phrases that the prophets in particular use to speak to what was coming on the horizon for them. What we saw is that as the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets were looking forward, they didn't always distinguish between what would be accomplished when Christ came the first time and what will be accomplished when Christ comes the second time. So as the Old Testament looks forward, we can see things that have already been fulfilled with the first coming of Christ, but then we also can see things that have yet to be fulfilled that we understand will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. And we use the analogy of looking at mountains from a distance. So as the Old Testament prophets were looking to the future and was as God was sending a hope in front of his people, it was like from a far distance, they were looking at different peaks of a mountain range. So from a distance, there was no need to separate them or to say these things will happen when Christ comes the first time and these things will happen when Christ comes the second time. They were simply looking to the future as the spirit of Christ was moving in them. And they were speaking to the people of God, giving them a hope for the future. But then as Jesus Christ comes the first time and clearly begins to fulfill much of the Old Testament expectation, what we see is that some of the things that the Old Testament prophets were describing are actually separated by a significant distance. So remember we saw in Isaiah, specifically description of the ministry of Jesus, clearly fulfilled when he came the first time. But in that same passage, Isaiah spoke of a time where there would be absolute peace and harmony within all of the created realm. There would be no more carnivorous behavior. There would be no more dangerous animals. And so obviously that is not yet in place. But Isaiah was simply looking and saying, look, when the shoot of Jesse comes into the world, these are things that will happen. And so there's nothing 
inaccurate about that or deceptive about that or mistaken about that. It's absolutely 100% accurate. Isaiah simply was saying through the spirit of Christ, when Messiah comes into the world, these things will happen. Now that Jesus has come the first time, we realize that Isaiah was seeing things that in part have already begun with the first coming of Christ, but will not ultimately be completed until the second coming of Christ. So it's very important that we understand that the Old Testament is forward looking. So then we move to the New Testament. And we looked at some passages of how the New Testament understands the time frame or the time period that Jesus established when he came into the world. So some of the phrases that we saw, the phrase, the fullness of time, or the phrase, the end of the ages, or in 1 John, the last or the final hour. So these concepts give us a very new way of understanding the age that began when Jesus Christ came into the world the first time. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. Galatians, Paul says, in the fullness of time, Christ was born of a woman. 1 John John says that this is the last hour or the final hour. So as we're understanding this entire time frame of the New Testament, the time that began when Christ came into the world the first time and that will be concluded when Christ comes a second time, this is rightly to be seen as the end of the ages, the fullness of time. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter calls it the last days. So we said that oftentimes when we hear a phrase like this, the last days in Christian conversation today, oftentimes what people are indicating is that we're in the very, very final piece of this New Testament age. Now, saying that we are in the last days is accurate. But using that phrase to say that we are uniquely in the last days as opposed to the 2,000 years of the church that lived before us is a little bit inaccurate. Because that first generation of the church, they were living in the last days. They were living in the end of the ages. They were living in the fullness of time. So these New Testament descriptions are accurate for the entirety of the New Testament age, sometimes referred to as the church age. The birth of the church, and we'll look at that tonight in Acts chapter 2, was part of how Christ, through his death and resurrection and ascension, inaugurated this entire new age. So what we understand is that what the Old Testament was looking forward to, what the Old Testament was straining forward to, it has arrived. It has arrived. We are living in the end of the ages. We are living in the fullness of time. 
So it's absolutely biblical. It's absolutely accurate. It's absolutely in line with the teaching of the New Testament to say that we are living in the time of fulfillment that was predicted and prophesied and taught by the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets in particular. So we want to understand that. We want to understand the glory of this age in which we live. This is the age of fulfillment. And it's absolutely appropriate for us to emphasize that. So remember we said that when we talk about eschatology, we can talk about things that have already begun, things that are inaugurated, things that are realized. So what we are doing now is emphasizing that. We're emphasizing what has already arrived what has already come, what is already present. And in large measure, much of what the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to, it has arrived. It has come. We are living in this age of fulfillment. But we also understand that there is a future component. And we're going to start to talk about that a bit more uh, tonight. There is a future component as well. But what we are making sure that we understand is when we think about eschatology, and when we think about it from a biblical perspective, it isn't accurate to only think of what is coming in the future. That is a big piece of it, absolutely. The return of Jesus Christ, final judgment, the new heavens and the new earth. Those are things that we'll talk about over the next couple of months. Those are all things that are in the future for us. But usually when we think about eschatology, that's all we think about is what is coming in the future. So we want to make sure that we rightly understand a huge part of eschatology, a huge part of the forward vision of Scripture has already been fulfilled. We are living in that time. And so we never, ever, ever want to take for granted or sell short the glory of the age in which we are living. We are living in the age of fulfillment. We are living in the fullness of time. You are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. The things that angels long to look into, the things that the prophets were straining to try to understand, you are the recipients of the fulfillment of that. And we don't ever want to take that lightly. We don't ever want to take it for granted. And because we never lived on this side of the cross, it's very easy for us to do that. One of the great values of reading the Old Testament is to help us realize what we have in Christ. Because most days we wake up and we really run the risk of taking for granted the glorious things that are ours in Jesus. So part of the real value of reading the Old Testament is the Lord uses the Old Testament to remind us just how incredible what we have in Jesus truly is. You are experiencing God in a way that no one on the other side of the cross experienced. You have an intimacy with God that David didn't know. You have fellowship with God that Moses didn't know. 
You have friendship with God that Abraham didn't know. You know, as you think of these pillars of the faith, and if you, you think of their relationship and their walk with the Lord, what the scriptures clearly teach is that what you have in Christ is far greater than what Abraham had, than what Moses had, than what David had. Remember the words of Jesus when he said, I tell you, of those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Why? Because he was the prophet who actually lived to see the arrival of Messiah. Jeremiah didn't live to see the arrival of Messiah. Isaiah didn't live to see the arrival of Messiah. Elijah, Elisha, they didn't make it. So John the Baptist was the greatest of the long line of Old Testament prophets because he actually lived to see Jesus come into the world. But what does Jesus say next? But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. The least. So maybe you say, I'm the least in the kingdom of heaven. I'm the least in living word. I'm the least in the church in Philadelphia. Well, praise God, because that means you're greater than John the Baptist. And he was greater than Moses and David and Abraham and Ruth and Sarah. And so this is part of what eschatology really encourages us to consider. That what we have in Christ right now is absolutely incredible, is absolutely glorious, is absolutely so far beyond the best of what the Old Testament saints enjoyed. And that's how we want to think. And that's why we want to use phrases like the last days, the fullness of time, the end of the ages, to describe the entirety of the church age. So the Old Testament was looking forward, but the New Testament now we are called upon to look back to the cross and to look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. And as we ended our time two weeks ago, remember we said that there's a very interesting distinction in the New Testament. The New Testament uses the phrase, the end of the ages, but it also uses the phrase, the end of the age. The New Testament uses the phrase, the last days, but it also uses the phrase, the last day. And so again, initially, that may not seem like much of a distinction. But when the New Testament uses these phrases in the plural, it's talking about the entirety of the New Testament age, the entirety of the church age. When it uses it in the singular, it's talking about that moment of the return of Jesus Christ, the great harvest, where all will be judged, where evil and righteous will be separated. He will raise them up on the last day. He will judge them on the last day at the end of the age, at the final harvest. So Jesus and the New Testament also clearly understand that there is an end to this age in which we are living. So we want to make a distinction. The end of the ages, the entirety of the New Testament church age. The end of the age, that moment when Christ returns. The last days, the entirety of the New Testament age. The last day, that moment when Jesus returns. Okay? So that's where we ended things two weeks ago. I'm going to pause here just to see if there are any comments or questions about this before we begin the second page.
Yes, and remember to use the microphone so that folks on Zoom can hear you. I have a question, Dave. Can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. Flora, go ahead. Um, when you said that um, we we're uh, the least of us is greater than John the Baptist, is that because um, the Holy Spirit lives? Is one of the reasons is because the Holy Spirit lives within us? Yeah, I mean, Jesus is making a very, very general statement there. So I, I would say, Flora, it is as broad as everything that we have in Christ that the New Testament says that we have. And so that's, you know, that's, that's as big as the New Testament. You know, the reason why Jesus says something like that is to capture just the glory of everything that we have because Christ has come. But even though Jesus is saying, you know, we are greater than John the Baptist, you know, the emphasis really is on himself. You know, the only reason that is true, the only reason that has happened is because of what Jesus Christ has done. You know, the least of us in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, not because, you know, we're a more faithful prophet or a more bold witness or a more anointed person. It's because of what Jesus Christ has done. See, that's how glorious the fruit of what Jesus has done. You know, his death and his resurrection and his return to the Father and the giving of the Holy Spirit is so incredibly awesome and beautiful and powerful. That's why each one of us is enjoying things that no one in the Old Testament could fully lay hold of. So the answer to your question is the reason why we are called greater than John the Baptist is because of Christ and what he has done. And that greater is everything that we have in Christ because of what Christ has done. Okay? But yeah, thank you for bringing that up. But yeah, we have another comment or a question. It was like Flora's question, which was, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine us as being greater than the prophets of old. <laughs> And um, yeah, the focus is that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and dwells in them too. But I, I'm not sure exactly what the distinction is because when they are the 24 elders in the throne, I would like to believe many of them are elders of the ones that we've read of. You know, maybe there are some New Testament people there. Well, again, I, th I think the idea is, you know, what Isaiah, what Jeremiah, what Ezekiel... What they longed to see, they didn't see. They did not live to see the coming of Christ into this world. We have. You know, this, this first coming is not on the horizon for us. It's something that we look back on. That's, that's what makes it an age in every way that is greater. And so, yeah, but I think it's important that we really, really consider this. Because I think generally speaking, as we read the stories of the Old Testament, we would say, well, you know, we just read Ezekiel, you know, that incredible vision that he has, the incredible ministry that he has. You know, we would consider that what Ezekiel had and what he did was far greater than what we have. But no, what the scriptures say is absolutely not. Because what Ezekiel longed for, what Ezekiel could only look at from a distance, we are experiencing. That's the difference. 
You know, what Moses only looked at from a distance, and this is the, the metaphor of the promised land. You know, in a natural sense, Moses died outside of the promised land. He did not enter the promised land. What he was only able to look at and not actually enter into, we have. We have. Because Christ has come. So, for example, just think of access to God. When the tabernacle is constructed, who had absolute access to God? Only the high priest. How often could he enter into the place where the glory of God dwelt? Only one day a year. You can enter into not the earthly copy of the Holy of Holies. You can enter into the actual Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant resided, the Holy of Holies in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant resided, that was only the earthly copy. That was not the real thing. That was simply an earthly copy of God's throne room in heaven. That was so holy and access was so limited, only one man, the high priest, could enter into that place only one day a year. But you, because Christ has come, because he has died and risen and returned to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit, you can enter into the heavenly reality, not the earthly copy. You can enter into the heavenly reality whenever you want. That's the glory of what we have. That's why what we have is so much greater than what any Old Testament saint had. And again, if you're thinking of the priesthood, well, then isn't the high priest greater than us? But remember, the high priest had to constantly make a sacrifice, to constantly make an animal sacrifice because the blood of bulls and goats could never cleanse from sin. But you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, something that the Old Testament saint could only dream about. That, that, that blood of bulls and goats and rams and sheep could only accomplish an outward ceremonial cleansing. But the blood of Jesus Christ has now cleansed you from within. You are now pure from within in a way that no Old Testament saint was ever purified. Never, never purified the way you are because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So you see, this is, this is how the scriptures are challenging us to think. Because most of us, like I say, when we read the stories of the Old Testament, we're like, well, well, these folks are in scripture. You know, Ruth has a book. I don't have a book. But what you have is so much greater than Ruth. What you have is so much greater than Sarah. What you have is so much greater than every one of the faithful Old Testament saints who has gone ahead of us. That's what this concept of, of realized eschatology makes clear. Because we sell short the glory of the age in which we are living. And we oftentimes undervalue all that was accomplished when Christ came the first time. And all that we have received as a result of that. But this is all exactly what the New Testament is challenging us to believe. And then, of course, challenging us to actually walk out by faith. Believing these things and living differently in light of these things. Okay? Two short comments. So, 
what you said, we're undervaluing, we're living so beneath that which has been accomplished for us, or we're thinking or our mindset is so beneath that which has been accomplished for us. Um, kind of like a, there was a, a pastor who once said, um, you know, being a child of God is that you can enter a mansion, you know, while people uh, have to take appointments with the king and, and, and probably wait on the outside and, and there's a separate room for them. You as a child of God can enter with your dirty sneakers and, you know, as you are grimy and sweaty and, and go straight in and do whatever you need to because you're a child of the king and you don't you don't need to worry about all that ac that access has been given to you so just that just but but not to live like that um is is i think a constant challenge the other thing is those the, the preachers with the bullhorns on temple's campus you know i mean everyone laughs at him and he's like the end has come the end has come you know he's right it has come but he is probably saying it that we are uniquely a generation upon which the end has come and and again it's not a big thing but you can see how if if we don't do everything we can to understand how scripture presents truth and so if we use phrases that scripture uses but not quite in the way that scripture uses then you can see how even in a small way and sometimes in a really big way we start to miss it you know we start to miss it and there really at least in in my lifetime there has been sort of this this, I don't want to say arrogance, but almost sort of like a pride, you know, that we are the ultimate generation of the church because we are that church that's living in the last days. And you can see how that pride creeps in when you don't understand that all of this is the end of the ages. All of this is the last days. Now, of course, you know, when we die and go to be with the Lord, you know, all of us are going to have our theology corrected. Not one of us is getting it absolutely right. But we want to do everything we can to get it as right as possible. Because the more that we dive into the truth of God's word, the more that we really try to get as accurately as we can the truth of scripture, the more that we will be in line with who he is and what he has done. And so you can see how even just with what we're doing as, as a review, you know, when you start thinking this way, then you start really realizing what you have in Christ right now is just phenomenal. You know, each one of us should just be living radical lives for Jesus, not because there's anything special in us, but because of what we have in Christ. You know, we have no excuse for not doing incredibly radical, amazing, phenomenal things for the Lord, because that's what we have. That's who we are. And, and all we're doing is reading the Bible. You know, all we're doing is reading the scriptures. All we're doing is just saying, okay, Lord, I want to know as much as I can, as much as I'm able to comprehend about what you say about these things. That's all we're doing. And we're realizing, man, 2,000 years ago when Jesus came into this world, everything changed everything changed and the glory of the age in which you and the rest of the church is living and has lived is glory beyond what most of us are daily living in. that's what we need to understand that's what we need to understand okay well are we ready to jump to the the second sheet this is eschatology introduction part two
I think Carl has emailed the folks that are on Zoom, so hopefully you have that. So we're going to just continue to unpack this idea that the New Testament gives us, that we are living in the age of fulfillment, that we are living in the last days, that we are living in the end of the ages, but that there still is more coming. This is not the end. This is not the end. This is incredible, but this is not the end. And the New Testament makes that clear. So we've got a couple passages here at the top under the heading, the present age, the coming age. So if we could have a couple volunteers, would someone turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, and then read that for us in a minute? Just raise your hand if you're going to look that up for us. Matthew chapter 12. Howard, thank you. Uh, Luke 18, 29 to 30. Luke 18, 29 to 30. Ted, thank you. And then Luke 20, 34 to 35. Luke 20, 34 to 35. Do we have a volunteer to read that one? Ephraim, thank you. Okay, so Matthew 12, 32. Matthew 12, 32. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Okay, so Howard's translation says world. A lot of your translations say age. So either in this age or the age to come. So again, this is, is, is pretty basic, and obviously it's not even the main point of what Jesus is saying here. But Jesus is clearly recognizing there is a present age and there is an age to come. Okay? Who has Luke 18, 29 and 30 for us? And he, said to, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has who left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. At this time and the age to come. So again, we see Jesus making a very clear distinction here. This time, this current time, this current age, and the age to come. And then the last one, uh, Luke 20, 34 to 35. Jesus replied, the people of this age married are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in merit. So this age and that age, or again, the age to come. So again, what we saw is all three of these passages, Jesus is all obviously talking about other very significant things. But what we see here is the backdrop of each one of these passages is this idea of this age and the age to come. There is both. 
So when we are understanding New Testament eschatology, we have to understand that there is something that is present right now, inaugurated or realized, but there is also something that is coming. So the designation that is frequently used is already, not yet. If you don't remember anything else from these weeks of eschatology classes that we're taking together, remember those three words. Already, not yet. If you truly understand the concept behind those two phrases, it will completely transform how you live your daily Christian life. And I'm not exaggerating. This age, this time, the present, already. The age to come, the future, not yet. That is where we live right now. Already, not yet. Okay? Now, we want to specifically look at it in terms of the kingdom. So the next section, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So would someone read for us Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. If someone can turn there for us and read that for us. And then while someone is turning there, if someone could read for us Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. So does someone have Matthew 8, 11, and 12? Karen, thank you. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth okay so a couple of really key ideas there but what we are focusing on is jesus is speaking of the kingdom of heaven as something in the future many will come one day many will come from the east and the west many are going to be gathered from the far reaches of the earth and in the kingdom of heaven they will sit and have a meal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what Jesus is saying is, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is future. There is a future component to the kingdom. At this point, not everyone that's going to be gathered has been gathered from east and west. At this point, not everyone who's going to recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is doing so. Jesus is speaking in the future tense. This is something that will happen. So what we see here is that when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, sometimes he's talking about the kingdom as something that is a future reality. There is a component of the kingdom that is a future reality. And just by way of side comment, I do not believe there is any distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. There are some in the past who have tried to make a distinction between the two. Matthew prefers the phrase the kingdom of heaven. John almost never talks about the kingdom. This is a phrase found on the lips of Jesus 
in the synoptics. But my conviction is that there is no distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Probably why Matthew preferred the designation kingdom of heaven is because he was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And there were many Jews who so revered the name of God, they would never actually speak the name of God. Even today, there are some Jews, if they are writing the name of God, they will not write it out. The name of God is too holy to ever write out. Some even avoid saying it. That's why sometimes you see Jesus use something to stand for God. So he'll talk about heaven, but he's really talking about his father. So what I believe is that when Matthew is having Jesus use the phrase the kingdom of heaven, it's the exact same thing as the kingdom of God. I don't believe that there is a distinction between the two. Okay? Would someone now read for us Matthew 12, 28? Matthew 12, 28. Again, Jesus is speaking of the kingdom. But what does he say about it here? But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. All right. So Jesus is being accused of casting out demons or casting out devils by the power of Satan or by the power of Beelzebub. Now, of course, that's a horrific, blasphemous accusation. He says, in fact, I'm casting out demons by the power of God. And he says, if I'm casting out demons by the finger of God, then what? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what Jesus is saying here is the kingdom is here. Because, in fact, he was casting out demons by the finger of God. And so, in fact, when Jesus came, he brought the kingdom with him. The kingdom of God is here. If you look at the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's one of the central teaching themes of Jesus. He talks about the kingdom almost more than anything else. The kingdom. So what he says is that the kingdom of God is here, but the kingdom of God is future. Already, not yet. Already, not yet. So when you are talking about the good things of God, when you are talking about the blessings of God, when you are talking about the components that make up the kingdom of God, it is right for you to think of what you have right now, already, present, and also to think of what is coming, still in the future. It's not either or. It's both and. The kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is future. And you see, even as we consider that, it helps us to understand this age in which we live. Why do we see so much violence? Why do we see so much corruption? Why do we see so much sexual perversion? Why do we see all these things? Because the kingdom of God is still future. The kingdom of God is still future. The kingdom of God is still coming. That's why we see so much sin running rampant in this world. And yet, we see the gospel advancing. We see people getting saved. We see people getting healed. 
We see people getting delivered right now. Why? Because the kingdom of God is present. You see, just in this simple dynamic, already not yet, it helps us to understand this age. It helps us to understand why there is so much evil and why there is so much good. It's both. There's so much evil because the kingdom of God is still future. The kingdom of God is still coming. There's so much good because the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is present. It's both. It's both. And the New Testament doesn't expect us to try to separate those or try to emphasize one and ignore the other. The New Testament fully embraces both. We are living in an age where the kingdom of God is advancing in a way that it never has before. The gospel is going forth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. And yet we live in an age of horrific evil. We live in a time of just rampant godlessness. The New Testament clearly indicates that both of these things will be present in this current age. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here, but it's still coming. That's why we see both. You may remember in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus tells the parable of the weeds and the wheat. The wheat are the sons and the daughters of the kingdom that are planted by Jesus and planted by the Father. That's us. We're growing. We're growing right now. The kingdom is growing right now. But the enemy, the devil, comes and plants weeds. They're growing as well. Remember the, the servants asked the master, should we pluck the weeds out right now? Should we get rid of the evil right now? And what does the master say? No, wait till the time of the harvest. Wait till the end of the age, singular. Then at the end of the age, that's when final judgment comes. That's when everything will get sorted out. That's when the weeds will be removed once and for all. It's not going to happen in this age. We will see the kingdom advance. Absolutely. We will see the kingdom advance. We should count on it. We should pray for it. We should be actively involved in seeing the kingdom of a God advance right now. But we should not grow discouraged or dismayed or disheartened if we see evil continue to grow. It's going to continue to grow as well. Those weeds and those wheat, are they, they are growing up together until the final harvest. We can't be naively optimistic. And we can't be discouraged and lack hope. The already not yet challenges us to embrace both of these truths. The kingdom of God is here. And the kingdom of God is coming. So one of the things that helped me, years ago I had a seminary professor draw this diagram, added to it a little bit. So, this is the first coming of Christ. This is the second coming of Christ. So, obviously, when Christ comes again, eternity is going to be glorious. Eternity is going to be only the kingdom and all of the kingdom without any of the evils of the present age. 
But this age is so good, because Jesus Christ has come the first time, so many of the blessings of the coming age have been pulled back into this present age, and we are enjoying them right now. So this is not quite as good as eternity, but we are enjoying so much of the eternal blessings that are coming. We have so much of the goodness of the coming age with us right now. So let me just give you a couple of examples of how we understand this. So if we focus on the already, already sin is defeated in your life. Already sin is defeated in your life. You are absolutely biblically accurate to say sin has been defeated in my life. And yet you realize that every day you have to get up and fight sin because sin is still present. Sin is still there. So already, already sin is defeated in my life, but not yet. I have to fight it every day. Eternal life. Is it something that you have right now? Yes, absolutely. Scriptures talk about you having eternal life right now, but the scriptures also talk about you having eternal life in the coming age. Salvation. You have salvation right now, but Peter talks about salvation as something in the future. When Jesus comes, then you will receive your salvation. You can see how this concept of already not yet shapes so much of what the New Testament teaches us. You are dead in Christ. You have died with Christ. That happened when you received Christ and you were baptized. And yet Jesus says you have to die daily. It's both. So it's right for you to say, I'm dead in Christ. But it's right for you to say, I have to die daily in Christ. It's right for you to say sin is defeated in my life. But it's right for you to say, I have to fight sin each day. It's right for you to say that I have been sanctified. Remember that list that Paul has in Romans. You have been sanctified. You have been glorified. Past tense. Past tense, Paul says, you have been glorified. You are glorified right now. But you will be glorified and you are being sanctified. You see how this is such an incredibly central truth to rightly understanding the New Testament and rightly understanding who you are in Christ. If you emphasize the already, then you stop fighting. If you emphasize the already, then you stop fighting. But if you emphasize the not yet and forget the already, then you get hopeless and you despair. And you say, well, I just hang on until glory comes. You have to hold on to both. You have to hold on to both. What gives you the power to fight sin daily, knowing that sin is dead in you? What gives you the power to die to yourself daily, knowing that you died with Christ when you accepted him? You see, the already is what gives you the strength to continue to fight for the not yet. This is the entire Christian life. This is the entire Christian life. The already and the not yet. And you can see how absolutely vital it is that we hold on to both of these things. That we absolutely emphasize what is ours right now in Christ 
and yet fully believe that something better is still coming. It's both. It's both. Okay? But let me pause here just to see if there are any comments or questions about any of this. Dave, I was thinking that uh, there are times when you can compare the Lord's redemptive work in an individual with his redemptive work in all of humankind. And, uh, you know, the, the, the verse that comes to mind is one that's quoted so often in Philippians 1, where he said, where Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Of course, we always think of that personally. It gives us great hope, as it Amen. should. But I can apply the exact same principle to what God is doing through all of history. He began a good work, and I'm confident that he's going to perfect it in Jesus Christ, that, that perfect parallel between the two redemptions, the individual and all of humankind. Absolutely. That's an excellent example of this. And you see, the thing is, once you start thinking this way, already not yet, already not yet, then you see it everywhere in the New Testament. You see it everywhere in the New Testament. The New Testament is constantly emphasizing what we have right now in Christ. The New Testament is constantly emphasizing what is coming. But just another verse to emphasize Ted's point that your personal salvation is an indication of a much bigger salvation. This is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now, most of us have learned 2 Corinthians 5.17 as Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's the way most of us learn it. And most of us have heard that passage taught that you are a new creation in Christ. Now, of course, that's true. You have been born again. You are a new person in Christ. But actually, the phrase he is is not in the Greek. What Paul actually wrote is, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's all he says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Probably what Paul is saying there is exactly what Ted was saying. He's probably looking at you being in Christ. Very personal, very intimate, very individualized. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that if Elliot Blake is in Christ, then there is an entire new creation that has arrived. You see, I, I really believe what Paul is saying there is the personal, individualized work of Christ in your life is an indication of the grandest work of Christ in the entire cosmos. If anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation. The old has passed away, the new things have come. And that's exactly the point that Ted was making. The work of Christ in you indicates that new heavens and new earth are coming. The work of Christ in you indicates new heavens and new earth are coming. You are the evidence. You are the fruit. You are the revealed truth that an entire new creation is coming. That's what I believe Paul is saying there. And that's exactly the point that Ted was making. 
And again, this ties into the glory of the age in which we are living. The glory of the age in which we are living. This is such an incredible age that because Christ has come, because he has died, because he has risen, because he has returned to the Father, because he has sent the Holy Spirit, he has grabbed so much of the blessings of the coming age, the future age, that age. He's grabbed so much of it, he's pulled it back into the present age and said, here, this is yours right now. Start enjoying this right now. Start living in this right now. Start experiencing this right now. That's the age in which we live. You are saved, and you will be saved. You are sanctified, and you will be sanctified. You have been forgiven, and you will be forgiven. Already, not yet. Does this make sense? Do you see how potentially transformational understanding this and walking in this can be? It's absolutely transformational. I mean, I, I'm convinced of that. I mean, as I started to grasp these things when they were taught to me many years ago, I was seeing the New Testament in a way I'd never seen it before. And I was seeing the reality of who I was in Christ and what I had in Christ in a way I'd never seen it before. Never seen it before. It was like the Lord was, was opening my eyes for the first time. That's the glory of the age in which we live. Already, not yet. Okay? Well, yeah, no, please. Yeah. Who is it? Gail. Hi. Hey, Gail. Um, this is kind of a, a, a continuation of the thought I had last week or two weeks ago. Um, your explanation of already and not yet also applies to the Old Testament, but kind of like a mirror image. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were already dead spiritually, but not yet dead physically. And all throughout the Old Testament, the connection with God, um, sin was not yet defeated. And that's why the sacrifices had to be repeated again and again and again. Um, it's all, I, I'm also envisioning that God's demonstration of his blessing was physically because that's the only relationship they had. They did not have the spiritual rebirth yet. So in a way they had an already, which was already spiritually dead, but not yet as in not yet physically dead. And I think that was what was really confusing when Jesus came is because they were expecting the physical blessings to continue and expand. I don't know. I mean, you've already explained that 
um, you know, in detail. But it just occurred to me that there was like a mirror image of a already and not yet in the Old Testament. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate, you know, the, the connections that you're making there. And, and again, as we said at the beginning, you know, once you sort of have a theme, it's, it's exciting and possible to try to kind of take that theme from Genesis through to Revelation. So yeah, absolutely. When you think of this concept of already not yet, I would say primarily that is something emphasized in the new. But certainly, yes, you know, the Old Testament community of saints, they had an encounter with God, but something far greater was coming. Absolutely. So no, I think what you're, you're, you're sharing, Gail, is right on. And in terms of those two components of death, you know, when we get to that, that next sheet, uh, the intermediate state, we will talk about death and we will talk about the different ways that scripture speaks of death physical death or biological death, spiritual death, because there is a connection and yet a distinction between those. But no, absolutely, Gail, you know, what, what you're doing is what I would encourage all of us to do, which is as the Lord is, is putting a theme or a concept or an idea in front of us, really try to trace it through scripture. You know, when I was at seminary, we used to have a, an assignment called a biblical theological paper. And you were given a passage of scripture and you were supposed to you know, pull out of it all of the themes that were found in that passage. But then you were supposed to look for those themes in every book of the Bible before your passage of Scripture. So, you know, if you were in, say, Obadiah, you know, you were to find those themes in Obadiah and try to trace them back from Genesis to Obadiah. And then you were to take it the other way. How were those themes advanced or greater fulfilled all the way to Revelation? So, in other words, what, what you were tasked with doing was looking at a specific passage but then tracing the themes from that passage through the entirety of scripture and so again i would encourage you to start thinking that way with the themes that we're, we're looking at because the, these are ways of understanding the entirety of scripture so what gail you're doing there thank you very much because i believe that's one of the ways that the lord wants us to read scripture okay well let's finish up the last section on this sheet, Eschatology Introduction Part 2. And of course, as we have been saying, you know, this was, was a glorious moment in redemptive history because Jesus Christ comes, he dies, he rises, he returns to the Father. But then when he returns to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost in a way that the Holy Spirit had never come before. One of the reasons why this age in which we live is so, so glorious, and this is what Flora was getting at earlier, is because the Holy Spirit has been freely given. The promise of the Holy Spirit was given to us in the prophet Joel. And in Joel chapter 2, he looked forward to a day for him that was much in the future. For him, this was much, much in the future. And in Joel chapter 2, he spoke of things that almost no Old Testament mind could fully comprehend. 
Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. It says, and afterwards, and when Peter's quoting this in Acts chapter 2, he says, in these last days, he adds that. And afterward, Peter, in these last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Joel was speaking of things that were absolutely beyond anything any Old Testament believer had experienced up to that point. The Holy Spirit was given in a very, very limited fashion before Jesus Christ came into the world. To have the Holy Spirit being given to everyone, young and old, male and female, slave and free, absolutely almost incomprehensible that the Spirit would be given in that way. Almost, almost incomprehensible that the Spirit would be given in that way. If it wasn't an anointed prophet of God saying it, most of the Jews would have said, no way. No way is that going to happen. But of course, as we know, and that's why we have the parallel passage there, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 21, this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. On that day, the Holy Spirit was given in a way that he had never been given before. And so it is right to speak of this entire age as the age of the Spirit. We can call it the church age. We can call it the New Testament age. But we can also rightly call this the age of the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit of God has been poured out in a way that he was never poured out before. Now it's interesting because Peter doesn't stop where we think that maybe it would have been appropriate. At the end of Joel 29 where it says, I will pour out my spirit in those days. But Peter actually quotes the entire passage. He goes on to say, and I will show wonders in heaven on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be darkened and the moon turned to blood. Well, as far as we know, those things did not happen on the day of Pentecost. So why does Peter not cut it short? Remember, as Joel was looking to the future, he was looking at things that would happen when Messiah would come. He was looking at mountains from a distance. When Messiah comes, these things will happen. And so what Peter was actually reinforcing by quoting the entire passage of Joel is this entire age is the age of fulfillment. We're not going to take the time to read it, but if you go to Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, there is a description of the end of the world. And specifically in verse 12, it borrows the language of Joel and says, the sun is going to be turned as black as sackcloth and the moon is going to turn to blood. Then it also talks about every mountain and island being uprooted from its place. 
all of humanity ducking into caves and saying, hide us from the fierce wrath of God. It is the end of the world. I know we're only in chapter 6 of Revelation, but it absolutely is the return of Jesus Christ and the end of the world. But what Peter is, is saying by quoting the entire passage of Joel is, look, this is all the age of fulfillment. This is all the age in which the Spirit will be given. This is all the age in which there will be incredible signs in heaven. doesn't matter if it happened 2,000 years ago or if it happens 2,000 years in the future. This is all the age of fulfillment. Okay? But the main thrust of what is being spoken here is that when Christ returned to the Father, the Holy Spirit was given. And as the Holy Spirit was given to the church of Jesus Christ, and as the Holy Spirit was being given to each person who calls on the name of the Lord, he is the instrument of so many of the blessings of the coming age being received right now. As charismatics, when we think of the Holy Spirit, we oftentimes think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Tongues and prophecy and interpretation and healing. And absolutely, that is an authentic and exciting ministry of the Holy Spirit. But that's just the smallest fraction of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes historically, charismatics have actually done a disservice to the Holy Spirit by only emphasizing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. A couple of years ago, the men's ministry fruitfully went through the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who forms Christian character in us. But these next passages that we're going to look at, to me, speak of some of the most exciting aspects of the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's go back to the book of Deuteronomy. So we're going back to the Old Testament to get a little bit better understanding of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 4, and Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 2. Would someone read those for us? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 4, and Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 2. Thank you. You shall give him the first fruits of your grain, your new wine, and your oil, and the first shearing of your sheep. And Deuteronomy 26.2, does someone have that? Deuteronomy 26 is actually the same book as Deuteronomy 18, in case you were confused. Deuteronomy 26.2. Excellent. You were right there in Deuteronomy, right? that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which you bring in from your land, that the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. So this concept, this word that is being used in these two passages was a central concept in the Old Testament. It was the concept of first fruits. In fact, the second Jewish holiday that we refer to as Pentecost 
is also referred to as the Feast of First Fruits. In the agricultural calendar of the Near East, spring, late spring, is the beginning of the harvest. That's when the first fruits of what you have planted begin to come in. And as a follower of the Lord, when that first fruit came in, the first sheep that were born, the first cattle that were born, the first grain that came in, you were to take that and you were to give it to the Lord. That's what was being described in Deuteronomy 18 and 26. That first fruit that was coming from the ground, you were to take it and you were to give it to the Lord. It was the offering of first fruits. And of course, not coincidentally, the feast of first fruits, the feast of Pentecost, is when the Holy Spirit was given. Now, someone read for us Romans chapter 8. Verse 23, Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Who have also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. I'm sorry, can you read that again? I was not there yet. Who have also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Is that Romans 8, 23? I think maybe that's one of the second passages. Okay, we'll get there in a second. That's a, that's a good passage. Hold on to that. We'll read that in a second. But Romans 8.23, does someone have Romans 8.23? Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our body. So here, the Apostle Paul is making a radical theological connection. He says the Spirit is the first fruits. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now it's interesting because when the New Testament uses this idea of first fruits, it uses it in a couple different ways. It describes Jesus as the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul sometimes talks about the very, very first folks in a region to accept Christ as the first fruits of salvation in that region. But here the Apostle Paul says the Holy Spirit himself is the first fruits. Now, in order to understand this, we have to understand what was going on when God said in the Old Testament, bring me the first of your crop. Well, when you were bringing the first of your crop to the Lord, you were saying, Lord, I'm giving you the first. And by doing that, I declare that the entire crop is yours. As I bring you the first of this crop, I'm declaring the entire crop is yours. That's part of what was being said when an Old Testament Israelite took the first fruits and dedicated it to the Lord. Lord, I'm giving you the first, and by doing this, I'm declaring 
that the entire crop is yours. Now, again, you have to understand this farmer has been working really hard. And he has been praying for rain. And he has been hoping that pests have been kept away. And that there hasn't been famine and blight. And folks coming in and stealing his first crop. And he's worked hard for this first fruit. But instead of taking it and enjoying it for himself and his family, he gives it to the Lord. An incredible step of faith. But what he's saying is, Lord, I'm giving you the first, and I'm trusting that you are going to bring in the full harvest. As I bring you the first, I'm trusting that you will bring in the full harvest. That's why historically a lot of Christians take their paycheck and tithe or offer first. Now, I don't think that is necessarily a New Testament requirement, but that's what they're building on. So when the Holy Spirit is described as the first fruits, what is being indicated is that we are just being given the beginning of the glorious things that are coming. We are receiving the Spirit, saying that He has declared us to belong to Himself, but He is also declaring that this is the beginning, very similar to what Ted was saying earlier, guaranteeing that the fullness of what is promised will come. The ministry of the Spirit as first fruits is that promise of God that you fully belong to Him and that everything that is promised will come. Now, jumping down. So the passage that Howard had, 2 Corinthians, was that 122 or 5 5? So read 2 Corinthians 122 again. Who have also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. And a parallel, just a couple verses later, is 2 Corinthians 5 5. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Would someone find those passages in Ephesians? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and Ephesians 4, 30. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Ephesians 4, 30. Ephesians 1, 13. And you, also, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the until the redemption of those who are God's possession to, to the praise of his glory. Amen. And Ephesians 4.30, does someone have that? I have it. Be, I'm sorry. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay. So there are some key words in these verses that I want us to take note of. Earnest was Howard's translation. Deposit. Guarantee. 
seal or sealed. These are all ways of describing the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This word that's used as earnest or deposit or guarantee is actually an Old Testament word, uh, arabon. It's only used in one passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 38. It's kind of a, a gritty passage. This is where Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and he doesn't have the money to pay her. He thinks that she is a prostitute, and she says, you know, how, how can I be sure that you're going to come back and pay me? And he says, here, take my staff and take my cord with my seal on it. Take my arabon. I'm giving you something and promising you that I will pay you. You take this, my staff and my cord, this uniquely belongs to me, and that is my promise that I will pay you the money that I said I would. It's the only place in the Old Testament the word arabon is used. Well, just look at the, the sense of humor the Lord has. You know, what a, what a, what a messed up passage. So much poor decision and so much craziness going on in Genesis 38. But this idea of a deposit or a guarantee, God says, that is the ministry of my Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in you is God's promise everything that he has said is coming will come 100% guaranteed there are days that we have doubts there are days that we are discouraged there are days we wonder are we going to make it are these things going to happen and every single moment that we feel like that, God says, remember my spirit. I have given you my spirit. He is the 100% guarantee that everything that I have promised is going to come. It's interesting because in modern Greek, not biblical Greek, these passages use the word arabon. He, the, the Greek just takes the word from Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word, arabon. Greek doesn't try to change it, just puts it in Greek letters, arabon. But in modern Greek, arabon means an engagement ring. In modern Greek, arabon means an engagement ring. What's an engagement ring? It's a pledge. It's a promise. We're not married yet, but I am committing myself to you, and I'm pledging myself to you that one day I will, in fact, marry you. This idea of sealing, the moment that you received the Holy Spirit, the moment that you were saved. And again, look at that language of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. There is an empowering of the Holy Spirit that can come after salvation. There is an outworking of the Spirit that can come frequently after salvation. But what Paul is talking about, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, is that reception of the Holy Spirit that every believer in Christ receives. Charismatic, non-charismatic. Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Baptist, 
The moment that you accept Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. Look again, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. So that moment that you heard the gospel and received it, having believed, the moment that you believed in Christ, you were marked in him with a seal, with an arabone, with a deposit, with a guarantee, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So we are not talking about the giving of the Spirit secondary to salvation. Sometimes as charismatics, that's what we emphasize. We sometimes refer to it as the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not trying to say that those things cannot happen. They do happen. But what the Apostle Paul is talking about here is the giving of the Holy Spirit to every believer. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's being emphasized is that moment that you heard the gospel and you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God's assurance, is God's promise that everything that's coming in the coming age, everything that is not yet in the kingdom, everything that is future, He, the Holy Spirit, is God's guarantee that it will come. And you will receive it. That's the promise that God makes. That's the Holy Spirit being our, our abode. That is the Holy Spirit being the first fruits. We have been given the first fruits of our salvation. The first fruits of our salvation is the guarantee that the entire crop is going to come in. You know, let me just end with this. You know, when you look at the three major Jewish holidays, look at how they are fulfilled. When did Christ die? On Passover. Passover was the beginning of the Jewish year. It's our March and April. It's the first month of the Jewish calendar. Jesus Christ died on Passover. He had to die on Passover. When was the Holy Spirit given? First fruits. Remember, we already said first fruits is that second major Jewish holiday. You count off 50 days from the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's what the word Pentecost means. It means 50. And so Jesus dies on Passover, and the Holy Spirit is given on first fruits. What was the last of the three major Jewish holidays? Rosh Hashanah is what they celebrate now. Yom Kippur was in there, but there was something that was central to all of that. Tabernacles. And what happened to tabernacles? Ingathering. It was the end of the agricultural year. What happens at ingathering? All of the harvest is brought in. When will all of God's harvest be brought in? At the end of the age. When all of the saved in God's world will be gathered into his kingdom. Isn't that beautiful?
Not necessarily. But it's interesting because when you look at Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah chapter 14 is kind of a wild chapter. But then like for us, out of the blue, it says, and they will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And you're like, you know, the Mount of Olives is splitting in half and all this chaos is happening in Israel. And you're like, and all of a sudden it says, and the Feast of Tabernacles will be said, well, why are you talking about tabernacles? I mean, for years, I never made the connection. But then I realized Zechariah 14 is talking about the end of the age. Zechariah 14 is talking about the return of Christ and the end of this age. Well, what happens at the end of the age? The full harvest of God's elect comes in. The full number of those who are going to be saved are saved. It's the end of the era of salvation. Passover, Jesus dies. Pentecost first fruits, the Holy Spirit is given. In gathering tabernacles, the fullness of the harvest is brought in. And look at all the parables that Jesus uses to describe the end of this age as the harvest. The weeds and the wheat, when are they separated? At the final harvest. Look at the imagery there. So when you're reading that Jewish calendar, look at how powerfully it is fulfilled in Christ. But the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, the arabone of the, of the Holy Spirit, the deposit, the guarantee, you receive the Holy Spirit the moment that you believe. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is God's 100% assurance that all of this is coming. But the Holy Spirit is not here waiting. And saying, I'm going to come into you when Jesus Christ comes again. The Holy Spirit has come now and come into you. And he has taken so much of the goodness and the glory and the blessings of the coming age. And he has deposited it in you right now. Right now, you have it. You have the glories of the coming age right now. And so as believers, we need to be walking in. Okay, any, any comments or questions before we close out our time together tonight? Is this making sense? Yes, no? Okay, because I realize when you start this, there's maybe some threads that seem a little disconnected, but hopefully it's, it's starting to come together. So at this point, we've sort of finished our examination of realized or inaugurated eschatology. What we will start doing next and for the remainder of our time together is look at the future aspects of eschatology. What is still coming? We've emphasized what is here. We've emphasized what we have now. But next, we are going to start looking at what is coming. So the first thing that we're going to look at is your death, because your death is coming. Then we're going to talk about what happens to you when you die, if you die before the return of Jesus Christ. Then we're going to talk about the return of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about the things that happen when Jesus Christ returns. So we're going to talk about the resurrection. We're going to talk about final judgment. We're going to talk about the new heavens and the new earth because these are all things that are connected with the return of Jesus Christ. So that's where we will be heading next. Now remember, this is the unique point in our schedule where we are actually going to meet next week. So two weeks in a row, you got me, I apologize. But because of the men's ministry and because of the number of Thursdays 
in September. This is the, the, the point where we meet in back-to-back -back weeks. So we are meeting next Wednesday, October the 5th, here at 7 p.m. Remember that is also the memorial service for Kevin Fulton. That will be at 11 o'clock. So if you come for the service and stay for the lunch, you're absolutely welcome to stay straight through if you want to, but you don't have to. But that's all gonna be one sort of busy, very full day. But if you have the opportunity, because I gave you the sheets, the intermediate state and the intermediate state part two, start looking at those verses. Start looking at those verses because that's what we will be looking at next week, okay? But let me close this out with a word of prayer. Oh, NK? Uh, Deb, sorry, it's me, it's not NK. Uh, oh, hey, Alex, happy uh, birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Deb, for the teaching this evening. That's really great. Uh, the, I don't know if it's, uh, it's not really very relevant to what you've your main points this evening, but uh, I was thinking about the coming of Christ, the first, the first coming. That by the even though that was like the end of the age of the prophets and all those, there was a clear anticipation of that coming. Even though throughout the ages it's been prophesied that he's coming, but by the time that he was there. Uh, he came the first time. There were real expectations. Uh, there were people that knew they were not going to die until they've seen him. There were uh, things that were going on to just uh, make the pe some people aware that it's no longer something that is far-fetched. It's right there. So in this um, last days and last... Uh, ages is there something that I, that sort of helps us understand and appreciate where we are today relevant to where the apostles were or throughout the ages up to 2000 years later uh, where we are in relation to that final moment of this uh, last days yeah, that's, that, that's an excellent question, Alex. What I would say is, as I read the New Testament, the strong emphasis of the New Testament is just the similarity, no matter where you are within the New Testament age. Because of the language that we've been looking at and the language that you used uh, just a moment ago, I think the primary focus of the New Testament is that we are absolutely sharing in that same age as the apostles because the two great definers of this age are the first coming of Christ, which happened for the New Testament church and for us, and the second coming of Christ, which was future for the New Testament church and is future for us as well. But I think one thing that certainly the New Testament certainly encourages us to consider is that as we move through time, we are absolutely getting closer to the return of Jesus Christ. And what we actually see is the growth of two kingdoms. And so I think probably the best answer to your question is absolutely. We are seeing the kingdom of God in a state of greater growth 
than what the first century apostles saw. But we are also seeing the kingdom of darkness growing as well. So as we move through this church age, as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, it's absolutely right to say, hey, we are one day closer to the end. We are one day closer today than we were yesterday. So absolutely, we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than the first century church was. And I think also what the New Testament emphasizes is that as we move through this church age, even though there is a unity within the age, there is growth as well. And so Jesus, think of Jesus coming. At that moment when Jesus came into the world, the kingdom of God was one person. The entirety of the kingdom of God on this planet was one person. But now, it's way more than that. And of course, the vision that John has in the book of Revelation is it's a countless multitude before the throne. So there's a thing that we'll talk about a little bit that are called the signs of the times. Things that mark this age, but that increase as we move through this age. So one of them is the advance of the gospel. You know, look at how the gospel started with those 120 witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, look at the advance of the gospel. We've got missionaries in almost every country in the world. So one of the signs of the time is the advance of the gospel. But we also see an increase in the signs of the times, like earthquakes and famines and war. Jesus said these are signs of the time. Now, most of us think of these simply as something that occur right before the end. But what Jesus actually says is these are things that will mark the entirety of the New Testament age. So I think, Alex, to answer your question, what the New Testament says is there is constant growth. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You know, when he came into the world, the kingdom of God was a mustard seed. One man. But now that kingdom of God is growing. It's growing, it's growing, it's growing. And as Daniel saw, one day it's going to become a mountain so big that the entire earth cannot contain it. So I think what we see in relationship to us and the apostolic church and us in the return of Christ is we are seeing advancement. The kingdom of God is greater today than it was 2,000 years ago. The kingdom of darkness is growing as well. That's why the Apostle Paul talks about the godlessness and apostasy that will occur as we move through this age. So these are things that mark the entirety of the age, but they are things that increase as we move through the age. Okay? But that's an excellent question. Thank you so much for, for asking that, Alex. Um, we'll talk more about those things when we get to the, the theme of the return of Jesus Christ. How do we sort of mark where we are in terms of the return of Jesus Christ? Uh, unfortunately, the church at times has loved to try to pick a date, and the New Testament clearly warns against that. But the New Testament also gives us indicators that we are getting closer to the return of Jesus Christ. So we've got to kind of hold both of those things in tension. But anyways, we're way, we're way over time. But thank you, Alex, for that question. Excellent question. Let me close this out here with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for giving us this time together tonight. And we thank you, Father, for your desire to teach us about what you have done and what you will do. We thank you so much for the incredible gift of your Holy Spirit, who has come only because Jesus has come.
And may we truly appreciate all that we have in you and all that we have received through your Holy Spirit. May we understand that we are living in the age of fulfillment. And may we understand the glory of what we have received because Christ has died and risen and returned to the Father. Give us faith to believe these things and give us courage to walk in these things. Bless everyone as they make their way home. Give them a good night's rest and energy for all that tomorrow will require. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Amen.